The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, it can be used to improve delivery mechanisms, for instance. Um, overall, AI is going to really lower the barrier so that those less sophisticated actors can potentially develop these types of weapons. So, you know, once was once that was solely the province of, say, your state-run lab, you know, can now have uh, non-state actors uh, trying for it. Um, so the EO responds to this by tasking some key departments to evaluate and report on AI's capabilities uh, in this area, aiming to both, you know, understand and mitigate these threats. This is really putting a flag in the in the in the ground and maybe trying to find out some more information later. I'm Matt Gluck, Research Fellow at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 6th, 2023. A little over a month ago, President Biden issued a sweeping executive order on artificial intelligence, covering a broad set of AI issues, such as privacy, transparency, the development of biological weapons, and many more. The order hands out expansive directives to several U.S. government agencies and private industry, which the Biden administration hopes will help the U.S. lead the globe in AI development in a safe and sustainable manner. I sat down with Bill Wright, global head of government affairs at Elastic, a leading search company, to discuss from the perspective of an industry insider what the executive order means for tech companies that rely on AI and the relationship between tech companies and the U.S. government. Is collaboration among companies in the competitive AI space possible? Which aspects of the order could help smaller companies keep up? Will the order let companies dictate their processes for complying with the order's broad objectives? It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 6th. Bill Wright on the AI executive order. To get started, could you tell us a little bit about what you do and how it relates to artificial intelligence? Yeah, sure. So, um... First off, I'm head of Elastic's global government affairs, so you know primarily focused on uh, on public policy. I have been here with Elastic for oh I don't know about a little bit little bit over a year. A little bit about Elastic uh, before we kind of uh, go into where we stand in uh, around AI. We're essentially a, a data platform, um, but we're a lot more than that. So. Really, our core mission is, is to how to empower organizations to search and analyze their data in real time, no matter what scale that is. So 
you know, we've been in the game for about a decade. During that um, time, our, our team's grown to about 3,000 employees globally. We've had over 4 billion downloads of our software. We're trusted uh, by governments uh, around the world and by more than about half of the Fortune 500 companies. And, you know, the reason I was so excited to come to Elastic is data is exploding, you know, especially the unstructured data, um, which is right in our wheelhouse. You know, you think about all of the apps and the services in this podcast uh, today compared to, to years ago and the amount of data that is coming off of all of this. You know, by some projections in 2025, annual data volume will be 480 exabytes per year, which means absolutely nothing to me, but I can tell you that that's, uh, that that's a lot. And uh, to put that into perspective, all the words ever spoken by humanity uh, amounts to about five exabytes. So not sure if that's helpful or not, but suffice to say that's, uh, that's a lot. So at, at Elastic, we really try to help organizations sift through that ocean of data to find the answers they need in real time and, and do it at, at massive scale. Um, you know, two primary use cases, of course, are observability. Uh, so it's making sure your, your systems are, are transparent and understandable. That becomes really crucial when you're trying to figure out what's gone wrong or you're trying to fix issues efficiently. Um, and it's a data problem at its core because all of these systems and applications are, are pushing out uh, and generating data. Um, secondly, security. Uh, of course, that's about protecting those systems and threats um, and ensuring resilience. It, it boils down to a, a data challenge uh, where the goal is effectively detect, prevent, respond to incidents. So Elastic Security kind of harnesses both that search aspect of finding those threats uh, and AI to, to take all your security data uh, from events uh, to threat intel and try to turn those into, into actionable insights. Thanks. That's very helpful. So this conversation is going to be about the AI executive order. But before we get into the substance of the order, one question about search in particular. LLMs, large language models, seem to know pretty much everything about everything, no matter how obscure. So Elastic is a market leader in search. But will LLMs make search obsolete? Yeah, great uh, great question to start with, Matt. Uh, so first off, you know, I think it's key to really understand the, the limitations of LLMs. Um, so these models, obviously, they're incredibly smart, but their knowledge is based on the data they've been trained on. Um, and here's the catch. You know, that data is generally static. It's a snapshot in time. Um, so when the world changes, LLMs aren't always up to speed on that latest uh, information. But, you know, here's kind of where the magic of real-time search comes in. Um, and I'm just speaking for Elastic here. But, you know, think of search as sort of that librarian for AI. Uh, it's all about getting the most current, accurate information. So LLMs have some shortcomings that Elastic uh, addresses when building applications that make use of generative AI. So, for instance, you know, it may not be able to provide insights. LLMs may not be able to provide insights into your organization's proprietary software or internal documentation. So our ability to bring private or proprietary data to these LLMs at runtime is really critical for a lot of the AI use cases 
um, giving LLM knowledge about more you know domain specific things. So rather than making search obsolete, you know, I feel pretty strongly that that LLMs like ChatGPT are actually going to become more powerful with the help of search technologies, uh, you know, like Elastic and others. Um, so we're talking about combining uh, what offers the best of both worlds, I think, you know, that, that deep, that broad knowledge that LLMs have, along with that greater context and, and refining data of using your personal and proprietary data. And this, of course, can be accomplished by connecting things like ChatGPT to a search engine like Elasticsearch. As someone who works in search and has dealt with the intersection of AI and search, what stuck out to you the most from the executive order with respect to the important AI issues in the context of search? Yeah, you know, the EO was relatively quiet on search specific. I would say generally speaking, the EO went a long way at covering a lot of different areas. I mean, this is uh, the longest EO in history at 111 pages. I think it it sort of hit the mountaintops of policy concerns, um, but did not really dive into anything uh, search specific. Now, of course, you know there are a lot of areas that we'll feel ramifications of, uh, but did not really address search specifically uh, within the EO. Since ChatGPT came out about a year ago, many have detailed the national security risks associated with that technology and other AI technologies. I'm sure you've considered these risks and how to alleviate them in your role for Elastic. How does the executive order address the national security dangers you see as most pressing? Yeah, so, you know, national security uh, risks were, you know, were such a big part, significant part of the uh, of the EO considering the advancement of the large language models like chat GPT-4 I think the EO you know really takes kind of a holistic approach to it uh, to cybersecurity in particular it's it's not just about protecting the critical infrastructure from AI related risk it's also about trying to find ways to leverage AI to to bolster cyber defenses you know I would note that um, late last week, um, CISA released its its roadmap for AI. It outlined some of their efforts to promote those beneficial uses of AI um, to enhance cybersecurity capabilities, ways to protect the nation's AI systems from those cyber threats, um, and to deter malicious actors' uh, use of AI capabilities to you know threaten that critical infrastructure. And, and just a side note on that, you know, I think. Uh, personally, that AI is probably going to tip cybersecurity maybe in favor of the defender um, or at least level out that playing field. You know, there are other specific risks posed by, as you pointed out, national security risks posed by uh, technologies uh, like ChatGPT4. Um, you know, one of the biggest concerns, um, and it's it's throughout the EO and it certainly takes a lot of headlines, is around synthetic content. So this, so think, uh, think deep fakes, um, which can be used for a number of things, but to spread information, create those sort of false narratives that a lot of folks are, are concerned with. You know, you're really only bound by your imagination to, you know, to think about what kind of mischief uh, an adversary could, uh, could inflict with this. So, you know, I think the EO sets a marker. Uh, it directs, I believe, the Commerce Department to uh, begin to develop ways to authenticate, to track, um, and to label this kind of synthetic content. Um, and again, this goes back to 
trying to maintain that public trust in AI. Um, you know, another significant risk that the, the EO takes on is the potential use of, of AI in, in developing chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear threats, or CBRN. If you think about it, this really lowers the barrier of entry uh, for people to uh, malicious actors to get into this. It can accelerate the, the research and development of CBRN materials. Uh, it can be used to improve delivery mechanisms, for instance. Um, overall, AI is going to really lower the barrier so that those less sophisticated actors can potentially develop these types of weapons. So, you know, once was once that was solely the province of, say, your state-run lab, you know, can now have uh, non-state actors uh, trying for it. Um, so the EO responds to this by tasking some key departments to evaluate and report on AI's capabilities uh, in this area, aiming to both, you know, understand and mitigate these threats. This is really putting a flag in the, in the, in the ground and maybe trying to find out some more information later, as far as I can tell. I think lastly, the EO calls for the development of the National Security Memorandum to govern AI used on national security systems. So this will include directing specific AI assurance, risk management practices in the areas uh, that would affect U.S. persons. So we come back to balance here. I think the balance is critical. You know, there's huge benefits of AI in fields like cybersecurity, but it's also important for us to be aware of mitigate possible threats they pose. So I think this, uh, I think the EO was pretty good about uh, balancing those two, uh, those two pieces. That's a really helpful overview. Thanks. The order directs AI researchers across different firms to work collaboratively with one another, and also the firms to work with government agencies. I know you've had many discussions in your role with Elastic and in your previous roles in this space with leaders at other firms and in government about the role of AI in your industry. How do you view the nature of collaboration in the AI context within the private sector and between the private sector and U.S. government? Yeah. So, you know, I've been, like I said, I've been doing this for, for quite, a, quite a while. I think the, the role of private sector and public-private partnerships is absolutely crucial. You know, I have a couple of thoughts on this section of the EO. You know, first off, it's obvious, but, you know, private sector is really at the forefront of, of AI innovation. They're, they're the ones developing the new technologies, the new use cases. Um, so their expertise is really going to be invaluable in, in trying to shape uh, effective and practical AI policies. And as we've seen other technology policy issues, you know, particularly around cybersecurity, there's no government out there. There's no industry player out there. Uh, that's really going to be able to go it alone. It's going to take the whole of society uh, approach here. So these government policies definitely need to be informed by by the private sector. And I think the EO gives a good nod to that. So, you know, are, are government agencies receptive to this input? You know, I'd say absolutely. You know, they actively seek out that input. And I can, I can, I can tell you as a, a member of the technology uh, community, they're very open to it. You know, I, I mentioned cyber a bit earlier. Uh, when I first started in technology public policy, I was working on, on Capitol Hill and the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. That first cyber bill came through our committee. Um, at that time, you know, I, uh, I, important cyber threat data was really mostly siloed between government agencies and definitely between government and industry. Um, and if you go back any, even further, I think information was, was siloed and plagued law enforcement 
community and intelligence community when we were looking at counterterrorism. So, um, you know, I think over the last 20 years, not only have we broken down a lot of those silos, but the government's been very active in pulling in industry. But, you know, back to AI, uh, it's rapidly evolving. Government agencies often don't have the same level of resource or, or expertise as industry. And, you know, I, I don't think that's a, a controversial statement. You know, this is why agencies frequently seek our insights and in, uh, collaboration with, uh, with industry leaders. It's become kind of a symbiotic uh, relationship where, um, you know, the government provides those guidelines and frameworks and industry offers the, the, the innovation and, you know, kind of keeping people uh, up to date on the sort of the state of the art. In your experience, which agencies seem to be most saliently involved in developing AI policy and working on AI issues in the U.S. government? Typically, um, it'll include agencies like uh, Department of Commerce. Certainly, NIST is heavily involved with technology and trade issues. You know, since this has primarily been led by the um, um, administration, so the Office of Science and Technology and Policy uh, is going to play a key role in, in shaping national AI strategy going forward. And these public-private partnerships are really about leveraging each other's strengths so uh, we can all have trust in AI make sure that it's ethical, make sure that it's safe and responsible um, while still innovating, uh, innovating quickly. One of the ways in which artificial intelligence is so different from other technologies is the scale of advantage that progress in AI can give companies and countries that other technologies cannot. Do you think this capability of artificial intelligence to accelerate progress could undermine the type of collaboration that firms and countries have been able to achieve in other technological sectors? Yeah. So, you know, Matt, I see your, I see your point and I do think that AI, or I know that AI is truly a, a revolutionary technology, uh, but I would temper that with the fact that I, I think there are, there is room for a lot of players um, in the industry space. You know, so far we're, we're probably hearing just from the uh, big AI companies that are the, the usual suspects. But I would say a lot of the innovation, in fact, is coming from uh, a lot of different places, including uh, a lot of small, uh, medium-sized, uh, small, medium-sized companies. I would put, uh, you know, I would put Elastic in, in in that field. You know, I do think that in a global scope, it is uh, it is a race uh, around AI, and you know, we're in a a competitive geopolitical environment. But I, I also, like I said, I also think that um, there's room for a lot of a uh, lot of different players. I think that's one reason that the EO came out so quickly, and and it really did come out quickly. It came out within a year of of uh, Chat GPT or and, and GAI kind of coming onto the scene. I think that that really shows the importance of it to the administration and knowing that we have to plant a flag and try to lead in the policy development, um, or we will be stuck to, uh, you know, stuck to follow in the future. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. 
no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. 
your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. The Biden administration says in the EO that to combat harmful effects of limited competition, in the AI space, it will be necessary to give smaller companies access to technical support and resources. What do you think that assistance might look like? Yeah, I think that was a, a, a fantastic part of the EO and one that, uh, frankly, I was not expecting. You know, if you if you dig into the EO, it's a, it's a multifaceted plan. You know, it involves uh, agencies developing AI policies to tackle risks. It's really about trying to level that playing field um, and ensure that the AI market remains open and competitive. When it is open and competitive, um, we get the best technologies moving to the front, no matter where those are developed. You know, just a couple of things that the EO, EO does. It, it tasks the Small Business Administration with a, a couple of key responsibilities. It allocates funding for uh, what's called the Regional Innovation Cluster Program, the RIC program. Um, it's all about supporting small business and AI innovation and then um, helping those companies commercialize. We're talking about helping with planning, resources. I mean, this is a really big deal for the smaller players trying to break into the market. Um, you know, in addition, I think there's about $2 million in what's called growth accelerator funds competition. Uh, it's earmarked for accelerators um, that assist in expanding AI-related curriculum, AI training, uh, technical assistance. Um, this means direct support for small businesses, not only to like adopt AI, but to integrate it effectively into their operations and their their products. Um, now, here's one critique I think I have of the EO. Um, you know, like with so many things in government, it's really going to come down to execution. Uh, there are no specific deadlines associated with this part of the plan, uh, which raises a few questions about how quickly and effectively they can be implemented. Um, the success of this part of the EO you know, really hinges on, on SBA and other agencies' ability to roll these programs out uh, in the manner uh, in, in, intended. Um, but I think the overall thrust of, the, uh, of this section of the EO is, uh, is the right way to go. Let's talk about some of those deadline type components of the regulatory framework envisioned by the EO. As the government face of Elastic, do you generally advocate for performance-based regulations, which focus on whether companies achieve certain outcomes, or management-based regulations, which require certain processes to be in place, but are less focused on outcomes, or does it depend on the context? Yeah, so another great question here. Um, kind of gets to the heart of what uh, you know what I do as a, a government affairs person, and you know, like any good lawyer would tell you, um, it depends. So whether it's performance based or manage based regulation, it it's really not about a, a one size fits all answer. Uh, it really depends on uh, a variety of factors. You know, I'd say first and foremost, uh, it depends on what industry 
we're talking about. You know, different sectors have different needs. Now, again, I'm going to go back to cybersecurity regulations as an example. Um, um, you can't treat say, the financial sector uh, in the same way that you're treating the water sector from a, a regulatory standpoint. Financial sector is, is very sophisticated. It's well-resourced. You've got the water sector traditionally less technically savvy uh, and under-resourced. Tech companies, for example, you know, generally speaking, uh, we often thrive under performance-based regulations. And you know, those allow for more innovation. They allow for more flexibility. You know, I would say, generally speaking, as a country, we tend to skew more towards performance-based regulations. And we try to leave those details, uh, you know, to the organization. I, you know, I would say that, you know, as a lobbyist, uh, you know, we need to sort of stay adaptable. We need to understand kind of the unique needs of the of the industry that we're, we're representing and, and, uh, and keeping in mind kind of those broader societal contexts as well. How do you view the EO balancing performance and management-based regulations? Do you think it has some of each or it's more weighted toward one? You know, I think it leaves a lot of future directives kind of on the table, you know, asks agencies to say, you know, produce recommendations, produce a process. Um, Overall, it does, you know, strike a relative balance, I'd say, you know, on the, on the performance management side of the ledger, you know, it has a strong emphasis on, on safety, on security, on ethics. You know, the administration plants a few flags that they want industry producing, you know, AI systems that, you know, they're not just smarter, but they're also reliable. They're also ethical. Um, you know, they set these kind of end goals and outcomes, but don't really uh, focus on the means or, or inputs on how to get there. So uh, throughout the order, a, a big push for innovation, particularly on AI, how AI can bolster our, our cyber defenses. And I guess on the on the management based aspects of the EO, you know, there are directives for you know creating guidelines and best practices uh, to ensure that AI is is developed ethically. You know, we're talking about protecting privacy, advancing civil rights, and even even adjusting our workforce to maybe thrive in an AI driven economy. One issue I'm sure you deal with a lot in the search context is transparency. What steps does the EO take to provide users with transparency about AI-generated content? And in light of what you've seen in the search context, do you view those steps as being productive? Yeah. So, yeah, lots uh, lots of buzz around this one. Um, the executive order really zeroes in on this you know, transparency of AI generated uh, content. The, EO takes the approach about getting smarter technology in place. So EO pushes for advancements in, in technology that can identify, that can authenticate, that can trace uh, that content that's being you know, churned out by AI systems. Um, you know, could be a game changer because it's going to help us, you know, tell apart what's being created by AI and what's being made by humans. I think this is an area in technology that we're going to see a lot of innovation in uh, here over the next year. Um, you know, another area, the Department of Commerce has some tasks assigned to it. They've been asked to do a, a deep dive, um, has to be done within, I think, eight months, you know, really studying the tools and methods that are out there today uh, that can detect AI-generated content. They're not just looking at how to spot the content, but then also how to track it, where it came from, which is just as important, you know, how to stop AI from being misused, especially in, 
you know, very sensitive areas, like we're seeing in some of the headlines now around, around child sexual abuse material. Um, I think once they've gathered this material, they've got another, say, six months then to, uh, you know, come up with pretty solid guidance on, on how to authenticate digital content and how to spot the synthetic content. And finally, you know, OMB will, will take this guidance and pass it along to federal agencies um, where they will put out their own guidance. Uh, you know, I would say that I think the administration did the best that they could for this part of the EO. Um, there's just too much out there. We don't know. It's a an area of technology that it is probably advancing by the day. Uh, so this is one of those sections of the EO that I think they were really more about planting a flag, uh, indicating their interest uh, around this area. And I think this is also another part of the EO that you're going to see a lot of public-private partnership as uh, industry goes in there with potential solutions around uh, identifying synthetic or, or AI-generated content. How do you view the EO striking the balance of allowing U.S. companies to surge forward and be the leaders in global AI development that the Biden administration wants them to be, while also sufficiently regulating them to ensure safety and transparency and similar values? Yeah, I would say, you know, overall, Matt, I would say this is a fairly soft touch uh, executive order, meaning that you're right. They went into this saying, OK, we are in a, a global competition uh, for AI. You know, and I think governments all around the world are probably grappling with the exact same issue. So how do we take advantage of the uh, very obvious promise that uh, that AI holds? How do we mitigate those what are even more obvious, you know, potential perils associated with AI. I would say that overall, the EO um, takes a pretty light-handed uh, touch. Um, again, a lot of tasks for government agencies uh, to review and potentially promulgate their own um, orders down the road. So um, I reserve the right to to come back on Lawfare and uh, <laughs> tell you whether or not they took a, um, a you know two aggressive of an approach or not. But no, I would say much, I wouldn't say all, much of industry's reaction uh, to the EO is, okay, we understand our, we understand the administration's general concerns, um, but there are not a lot of teeth with regard to regulation. So I think they feel open to get out there and and innovate best they can uh, while keeping in mind some of the administration's, uh, you know, pretty clear priorities outlined in the EO. How does the AI regulatory environment in the U.S., including this new guidance in the EO, affect Elastic's work differently from how other regulatory environments abroad shape the work of foreign peer firms? You know, in the U.S., we're seeing kind of a patchwork approach with with state-level regulations like California's uh, Consumer Privacy Act, uh, but of course, we have no comprehensive federal legislation you know, on, the, on the privacy side. This was called for uh, within the EO. So what this does for firms like Elastic, it, it creates a dynamic and somewhat uncertain regulatory environment for us. So on the other hand, in places like the EU, companies face maybe a more uniform bit of regulations, but they're more stringent. So like GDPR um, and the proposed Artificial Intelligence Act, what we strive and what we hope for is to have 
more sort of general harmonization of regulations, whether that's in the U.S. and whether that or whether that's globally, uh, so that we aren't having to comply with hundreds of different uh, of different regulations. How do you view the consequences of the U.S. approach for a place like Elastic versus the consequences of something like the GDPR for foreign firms? Yeah, well, you know, Matt, keep in mind, I guess as a threshold matter, you know, many of the leading technology firms uh, in the world are based right here out of the United States. So and all of many of the uh, technology firms don't just do business in the United States. They do business globally. Um, so in many ways, we could be bound to uh, similar regulations coming out of the EU as we are in the United States. So that's why we have such a big push to try uh, to have these uh, regulations, generally speaking, harmonized uh, across the board. Uh, but if we're talking just sort of top level here, you know, I would say that just generally speaking, um, the, 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 you know, the EU's work around AI is a little more proscriptive. They focus on uh, different levels of risk, uh, but for those things that they deem uh, high risk, uh, they are quite stringent. So, you know, to to that degree, I think that it would uh, perhaps slow down uh, European-based uh, firms. Uh, they're under a little bit more regulatory potential adherence there. Whereas in the U.S., um, you know, I don't think that this EO, while it provides a lot of direction, does not have a lot of teeth. So, I think it allows for U.S. firms to, you know, innovate maybe a little more quickly. Let's talk for a minute about the data privacy legislation you've referenced. From your discussions with those on the Hill, what do you view as the most promising avenues for that kind of legislation? So I don't have, I don't have great, I don't have great hopes for a national privacy legislation anytime soon. You know, as you know, we have more than oh, I don't know, 50 uh, uh, statewide privacy um, uh, pieces of legislation. As far as the Hill goes, I've talked to a lot of uh, staffers. Nobody seems uh, particularly positive about the um, uh, aspect of, a, of a, uh, a federal data privacy law coming down uh, anytime soon. I hope that changes. I think it would uh, provide everyone with, uh, with some needed guardrails. But until then, we are looking at a patchwork of 50 different statewide, statewide laws. Uh, globally, we, of course, comply with, with, uh, with GDPR and with other uh, privacy acts uh, around, uh, around the world um, and consistently try to push for some harmonization so that we can you know, make our compliance maybe a little easier. When you're dealing with a patchwork of state laws, what effect does that have on your company? Do they conflict in certain ways? And how might that patchwork status of the law slow down your progress? Yeah, so great question. I will tell you one thing. It employs a lot of lawyers uh, around the country, um, helping us uh, ensure that we are compliant. Uh, but I think what it really does, Matt, is we pick probably the most stringent of privacy laws across the United States, and we aim for that. And we are just kind of hoping that what we do is, uh, is sufficient to apply to other, uh, other states and other regimes. But as you point out, sometimes there are, there's often overlap, but sometimes um, you know, there is an issue that happens to be unique to one state. 
Um, and that's when we have to put, uh, put a lot of extra, uh, extra work in, but otherwise we are just sort of aiming for that, what highest common denominator. You've mentioned that the EO doesn't provide very much search specific guidance. What are some search specific directives that you think would be most productive for the federal government to impose on your industry moving forward? You know, when the EO discusses um, privacy enhancing technology or PETs, so ways to use these large language models while still uh, protecting protecting privacy and safety. You know, I think that, you know, I'll I'll just speak for for Elastic. You know, I think that Elastic can uh, contribute to this effort um, by helping with those privacy enhancing technologies, particularly through a a product we have called Esray, um, where you are able to engage with that LLM, use your your private, your proprietary information uh, without exposing it to the larger LLM which has a lot of good privacy and obviously security um, implications to it. Um, so, yeah, I would like to see the administration uh, maybe dig deeper into some of those uh, potential technology advancements. Bill, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.